Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 13 of the Sin Essential Podcast. My name is John Gilpatrick. Joining me is Aaron Pinkson. Aaron, how are you? Well, I know you know, John, that I am a method podcaster, so <laughs> I just took a hit of something that should be kicking in here soon. Uh, unlucky for me, it is Mucinex. Yeah. A little bit stronger than uh, the uh, the folks in the fine film that we'll be discussing today uh, are hopped up on. Yeah. Uh, but we'll get through. We'll get through. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say that you are a resident sick boy this week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Th- thankfully enough, I'm in the very early stages of it, though. So uh, it shouldn't it shouldn't deter me too much here. But uh, if you do hear some indeterminate screaming at any point, I'm just I'm fine. I'm just working things out. Uh, there might be a baby on the ceiling. I don't know, but I'll get through it. Noted. Okay. Uh, also joining us is for the second straight time and the second time overall, Maddie Freeman. Maddie, how are you? Hey, I'm great. Thank you for, uh, joining us once again. We had a a great time, uh, last week and, uh, we're back again. So we, we had a little bit of a hiatus and, uh, now we're, uh, we're here in, uh, two consecutive weeks. So hopefully it's a, (laughs) that portends good things to come. Um, in case you haven't uh, gleaned it yet, we are discussing train spotting this week, um, which is uh, relevant once again with the release of T2 train spotting sequel um, in theaters. And uh, we're talking about the original uh, 1996, Danny Boyle, Ewan McGregor, uh, all sorts of uh, twisted drug addled delights. Uh, <laughs> Aaron, you wrote our opening take this week, so do you want to discuss the film and uh, your relationship to it? Yeah, sure. So, like you said, this is our well, our second week in a row for a podcast. It's it's also our second week in a row on the site where we're we're talking about a film that has a strong connection to something that is now in theater. Something we like to do every once in a while. Sort of a coincidence that it was just two weeks in a row that that we took this on, but. Uh, yeah, Train Spotting, like you said, directed by Danny Boyle. It, it was sort of a, a breakout. It wasn't his first feature. Um, that would be Shallow Grave, which I, I feel like had a, a fairly modest breakout internationally, but Train Spotting sort of really took uh, his career, his young career, as well as uh, the, the young cast's careers to uh, to real breakout. So yeah, my, my experience with, with Train Spotting is that I actually hadn't seen... Uh, it, in a in quite a while, it's it's one of those things where I know I have seen it, um, but I and I, I remember some small specific things about the film, which I think, given the nature of the film, a lot of people uh, would have that experience. But uh, it, it wasn't a film that I felt like I had a real good grasp on after you know twenty years or so. So uh, it was it was fun to revisit it and kind of see if it if it's still held up today and then kind of thinking about it uh, in conjunction with knowing that there's this sequel slash reunion film that is now in theaters, which unfortunately I haven't yet been able to see, but I I am morbidly curious about how that's going to be. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's uh, train spotting. It's, it's, sort of a, a, a strange mix of being really fun and being uh, very not fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, uh, which is sort of an, an, an interesting uh, con- sort of style versus content is, is an interesting mix. And I think uh, Danny Boyle is probably the perfect director to make this movie. 
uh, which in a lot of ways I think it, it's why it is so uh, it works so well is because of of his overall style that was was really kind of coming to uh, coming to form with uh, this his second feature. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely see that, but we'll get into it a little bit more. I want to let Maddie jump in. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship to train spotting? Yeah, so I've seen it a couple times. Um, honestly, <clears throat> honestly, it's been a little while since the last time I saw it. But um, yeah, I've never been one of the biggest fans of the movie. Um, but I def- it's definitely like an enjoyable ride as you're watching it. Um, and as Aaron said, like there are a few scenes that are just like um, seared into my memory. <laughs> um, like there's imagery in there that I think people, once they see it, even one time, just don't forget. Um, so it's definitely notable for that. And yeah, there's a lot to talk about here for sure. Uh, for sure. Uh, not only imagery, but I think some sounds that are difficult to forget. Also, <laughs> uh, uh, This was my first time watching Trainspotting, so I'm about 12 hours removed from taking it all in. Um, and one of the things that we're going to talk about, which is what uh, Maddie's written about this week, is sort of how this is, I guess you could say, something of a gateway drug for budding cinephiles. <laughs> um, uh, and I, I, I could see that watching it. Um, now I th- I th- I'd say I'm a good, you know, eight to ten years into my uh, being a cinephile, and I feel like maybe I'm a little bit harder to impress now than I would have been uh, back then. And so I, I might be coming to transpotting at the wrong time in my life, but it didn't really land very well with me. Um, I don't know. We'll get into it. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, a rare negative take, perhaps, on one of our podcasts. But I'm not the biggest Transpotting fan. Uh, I, I am excited to talk about, uh, talk about it with all of you guys, though. So uh, this should be fun. Aaron, do you want to give us like a little bit of a plot intro for people who haven't seen it? Sure. So really, it's kind of a, a difficult film in terms of a plot to describe because it it's sort of a movie that's like really all over the place in, in terms yep. of its narrative. And there, there's a lot of and I think part of the if, if you do have a negative take on this film, I think it's probably going to be because of its narrative. Uh, maybe that maybe that's part of the reason why. Uh, you had that reaction, John. I guess you'll 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 say in a minute here. But um, the film stars Ewan McGregor uh, as uh, Renton, who is a young man in uh, Scotland, who's sort of a I guess for lack of a better term, a, a fuck up. He's a drug addict, a lot of heroin slinging throughout this film, and he is under the bad influence of his close group of friends. Uh, including the likes of uh, fun-named Sick Boy, played by Johnny Lee Miller, and Spud, played by Ewan Bremner. Uh, two really good, well, I guess if you include Ewan McGregor, three really great young Scottish actors who have all gone on to different, but all very good and, and interesting, successful careers. Uh, and then there's also kind of on the on the side of that, uh, Begbie, who's played by Robert Carlyle, who probably at the time was the actor who had, who had the, at, at the, the point, had the most cachet in terms of uh, international film. Um, he was, I believe, I, I didn't really research this, but he, he was one of the stars of The Full Monty, uh, which I think came out before. Nope, it was the year after. So that there goes that argument. But anyway, 
he uh, Begbie is sort of a sort of like a crazy like violent personality in in the midst of these uh younger people who are all uh, really just like their lives are just totally controlled by by their their drug addictions and then they have a, a lot of uh misadventures basically <laughs> um but in, in terms of the plot it it's it's sort of a, a movie that runs hot and cold uh like we've already all mentioned there are a few really crazy scenes that are big and bold and hard to forget uh, but sort of the connecting sinew around those big scenes there's really not much there, at least in, in my mind. And this might, like I said, if, if you come to this movie with a negative opinion, I think it might be because of that. There, there are a lot of moments that sort of strangely drag. I, I think like, especially the, the third act after the, the biggest, I think craziest scene in the film where uh, Rent, Renton is going through his withdrawals and having some crazy fever dreams. Once you get past that point, I think it, it, the film kind of takes a strange uh, dip in its energy, uh, which is strange since it's the, the third act post-climax of, of the movie where everything should be kind of really ramping up to the conclusion, but it, it doesn't really. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, like I said, in terms of a narrative, it's, it's really just a, a bunch of misadventures from these young kids who are all uh, experiencing the, the side effects of, of the, cocktail drugs that they've they've been going through uh maddie do you have i mean do you kind of agree with aaron that um there's the film has some issues related to the way it sort of pieces its plot together yeah i think aaron hit the uh hit the nail on the head there and it's something that i've never been able to like articulate to myself before about why this movie didn't really resonate with me that much um and i think yeah you're right aaron it's like mostly just a collection of scenes and while scene by scene it can really draw you in you're right that there's not much happening to like keep the momentum going and you don't really get invested in the characters so much as you're invested in like the adventures that these characters are having and so it doesn't really leave as strong as an as strong of an impression as it could maybe yeah, it's it's sort of a strange thing, strange thing in that way, and and I, it was definitely how I felt about my rewatch. Is that these are all very distinct and interesting characters, but for some reason, you you I, at least I I couldn't really find a place to hold on to to any of them in particular. Like they're interesting on the surface, but I don't know if there's a lot uh, of, of greater character development there, which yeah, I think is is part of the issues that the film has. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming uh, to it from, is that I I didn't find any particular reason to care about these people or what they were doing. And, and maybe it's because I'm trained to expect that from Danny Boyle, which is that, you know, I feel like his best movies give us protagonists or antagonists that are really interesting or have something going on that, like, uh, ropes me in emotionally and, and these guys I was just kind of staring at from a distance and uh, mostly being appalled by and sometimes in ways that were amusing but in other times it was not I didn't find it particularly amusing and I don't know but I mean we've talked a lot about sort of why we think that this film works best as a collection of great scenes um, what are some of those scenes Aaron let's start with you since since you did the opening take like what are some of the scenes that you think people walk away from transpotting thinking like Holy shit, that was crazy. 
Well, I mean, there's obviously a few big ones. Um, I guess I'll start first chronologically, uh, which is a scene that happens um, early on in the in the first couple of scenes of the film, which is the uh, the worst toilet in Scotland scene. <laughs> um, which uh, so there's there's this bar that uh, Renton goes to. Well, he. I guess to step back a little bit, he has to, uh, he takes some uh, suppositories uh, that he's given to by his uh, drug dealer uh, to uh, sort of, uh, I think, to come off uh, or to, to sort of maintain uh, what he's going through. And uh, right uh, around when he puts them in, he he finds himself uh, to be in the, the grasp of uh, a, a nice little stomach uh, issue. So uh, he runs into this bar that uh, it shows graphically on the screen. It's called the, the Worst Toilet in Scotland. And it is just a horror show of <laughs> some of the like grossest things that you would never want to encounter in any sort of public bathroom. Uh, there's like things dripping from the ceiling. Everything is like covered in just this muck. Uh, and then the, the toilet stall that he goes into uh, is totally backed up. And uh, to cap things off, he, he when, once he is uh, once he's done, uh, he has to recover his suppositories. So he has to do a nice little deep dive into the toilet. But uh, thankfully, Danny Boyle gives a little bit of a flourish in this. I mean, it, it, it maintains its grossness, but there's a little bit of uh, magical realism that he that he goes into where uh, Ewan McGregor's character basically like swims into the toilet, into this um, idyllic-looking sort of ocean or, or, or whatever, sort of uh, surrounded all by water, finds what he's looking for and then crawls back out, literally crawls back out from inside of the toilet. So it's, it's sort of a fun little punctuation onto just a really nasty, uh, gross scene, which is, is something that train spotting kind of comes back to a few times. There's a lot of shit in this movie. Yes, there is. Oh my God. <laughs> which, uh, I think in my, in my opening take, I, I described that a lot of the comedy in train spotting is definitely like 13 year old boy humor. Um, but I, I mean, it, it's a lot of the, the, the funniest bits are uh, sort of nervous laughter. Like, I can't believe that that kind of just happened. And, and you see that in this in this particular scene. Maddie, what are some of the scenes that you uh, enjoy or find particularly horrifying? Um, so, yeah, of course, that one comes to mind. <laughs> um, one that I remember is, uh, I think Aaron, or maybe you, John, mentioned it before, uh, where he's going through... Uh, Ewan McGregor's character is going through withdrawal and um, he's having the hallucination and I think uh, the first time I actually saw the movie I was warned about that scene and how it's just going to like stay with you and it definitely has um, yeah sorry I'm just trying to get my dog out of the room um, <laughs> <laughs> we're a dog friendly podcast that's okay. yeah, yes we are we are, we are. <laughs> yeah so just when it comes to like uh, scene by scene like those two the toilet scene and then the withdrawal scene are definitely, um, I think, the ones that kind of stay with almost everyone who sees the movie. Yep, yeah, that was that was my take as well. <laughs> so, John, this was the first time seeing the movie. That that the withdrawal scene is 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 pretty famous, I think. It, and you, I, I feel like you kind of see some elements of that through popular culture, you know, over the last 
you know, ever since the movie came out. Uh, had you sort of known that that scene was coming or had seen it before? Or what was your reaction to, to seeing that for the first time? I definitely hadn't seen the scene uh, yeah. before, but I was familiar. I knew it was coming, and, like, I think there were elements to it that I was expecting. Uh, and I right. can't really point to anything in particular and say, like, oh, it's because of that, like, episode of The Simpsons or whatever that, like, you know, I'm familiar with it or anything. Um, mm. But, yeah, that was sort of, like, the big thing I was waiting for. And that's why I think the toilet scene caught me so off guard, because I wasn't expecting to be, uh, to have another scene come up that was so, uh, I guess, unforgettable for, uh, for in a number of ways. But <laughs> those, were, those were the sounds I was alluding to earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and I mean, just that the image of the the baby on the ceiling. Uh, yeah, yeah, that that was it, in particular was kind of the thing that I knew uh, a little bit about. Um, and it's just the the strangest, like early CG. Like it doesn't meet the Uncanny Valley, but in a, in a way that kind of makes it even more like creepy and frightening. Yeah, yeah you're right. It's like point. this weird, like pudgy head that doesn't really look like a baby. Which I mean, I guess in, in in the scene, if you're having these these fever dreams that that the character is having, I mean, it's not going to be a photorealistic baby that's that's haunting you probably. Right. Uh, so I think it I think it works well in, in that way. Um, a little bit. What are like some of that? Uh, Ally McBeal baby. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Except uh, not dancing. Um, <laughs> right. You know. So there there's a uh, <laughs> there's a strong divide there. The other scene that I found, like, especially interesting was the sort of sex montage. Yeah. Um, and I felt like that was kind of like, I mean, it was very high energy. It felt like mm-hmm. almost like a music video if you took it out of context. Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a lot of very music video moments in, in the movie. Like the, the opening scene kind of with Lust for Life uh, kind of yeah. does that as well. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, yeah, that... that it, the sex montage is yeah that's that's definitely a great scene too i think it reminds me a little bit of a uh, clockwork orange some of the things that happened in that that movie yeah. like the the sort of the the, the speed the or whatever they were called yeah the the, the speed ramping that happens uh-huh. and, uh just the sort of moments uh, or the 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 movement of of the scene and then <laughs> the way the sort of uh that scene ends with uh spud uh, and more shit is, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. that's, uh, that, that, that's probably the grossest part of the movie, but like, might be like the time that I laughed the loudest because <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. like, it's like so ridiculously bad. And, and the, the way that he, um, Boyle sort of sets it up kind of like, you know, what's, what's going on here, but like, it's sort of a, uh, like a uh, him fighting over the sheets with uh, with the, his girlfriend's uh, mother, <laughs> like you know what's going to happen and you know what's going to happen, but it kind of it, it doesn't. It happens a beat after you kind of expect it to happen, and so that it kind of catches you a little off guard, uh, and is just like way grosser than <laughs> it, like would ever like actually happen yeah. in real life. Just how how splattered everything is. It's uh, it's gross. Uh, yeah, it's gross. Um, it's uh, in that scene though. Big ups to to uh, Shirley Henderson, who's an actress that uh, I've seen in a lot of different things. Um, I know she's she's uh, she. I know she was in Kelly Reichert's, um, uh Which one of her films was she in? Now I'm blanking. 
Um, I know she was in a good episode of Doctor Who that I love. I guess she was in the Bridget Jones movies, which my wife recognized her from, but I didn't know her from. And I think she's in a few of the Harry Potter movies, too. So she's a good actress in a small part here. Um, Kelly McDonald, too. Um, yeah. She gets the and introducing credit at the uh, at the beginning. Um, she one of the one of the actors now who's been highlighted in two of our podcasts. Uh, All right, so no country for old cause, Yeah, because she's uh, Llewellyn's wife in, in No Country. Um, it's fun to see her here as sort of <laughs> uh, a, a, the love interest of Renton. She's pretty great in this movie too. Yeah, I enjoyed her as well. Maddie, do you want to talk a little bit about the piece you're writing this week and, and sort of how this uh, film is good for people just getting into movies and discovering like what they can be? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know obviously this isn't universally the case, but a lot of us um, see this movie when we're like, uh, let's say in high school or college, um, maybe earlier, and... I think um, just talking to people, um, it seems like even if you weren't, you know, really into movies, like this one might get you hooked. Um, I think it shows you kind of what film can do in a lot of important ways that kind of inform like where you go next after you watch it. Like it introduces like the magical realist elements um, and it has, uh, you know, weird visuals. Um, so you get in a sense that like, if nothing else, this film uses the, like splits open the bounds of like what cinema can do, um, in some really fun ways. And so I think a lot of us are just kind of floored by like, um, the flashy editing and like the frenetic acting and all that. So that really speaks to us at that kind of impressionable age. And then maybe say at least in my experience, like I watched it again, like 10 years later and I was like, Oh, well, okay, it's fine. Um, it's nothing that I can take like super seriously. Um, but it's just so good when you're like 16 and like watching it in somebody else's basement. Um, and then I think there are a couple other movies like that too. Like, um, I've never seen Boondock Saints, but I know a lot of people <laughs> have the same kind of association with that movie. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and then there's also, uh, let's see what else, um, maybe A Clockwork Orange, even though I think that still holds up really well. Um, and then there's a couple other movies that are just known for like their crazy editing and probably a lot of violence and probably like a lot of uh, flashy stuff going on mm-hmm. that really speak to like a younger audience. Um, and then maybe or maybe not, they hold up when you're um, more steeped in like cinema like yeah <laughs> sorry now i'm just trailing off here but um yeah <laughs> i was yes. sort of watching it and thinking like okay this is somebody went to the theater and saw pulp fiction and said let's do that in scotland um, yeah i mean it's yeah. it's right totally i mean this is this is of that era where like miramax was king and they were making all these like small independent movies that would like break at sundance right. and be like be like the next big thing like totally like Pulp Fiction is probably and Reservoir Dogs are probably like the main examples of that um one of the films that in that sort of general vein that comes to mind first for me is Fight Club that seems the the kineticism the like I think for one of the one of the things that really is a through line through all of these movies 
uh, is that they all have uh, really progressive uh, visually and really strong uh, filmmakers, you know, filmmakers with strong visions uh, and strong tones. I mean, when you're thinking about obviously the Tarantino films, you're thinking about Danny Boyle, you're thinking about David Fincher. They all kind of come from this same era of filmmakers who were given a lot of uh, freedom to make films at pretty young ages. Fincher, I don't know about David Boyle's background, but I know like Fincher came through music videos, which we were talking about the aesthetic of train spotting that has a lot of music video sort of style of editing and, and movement and obviously the way it uses its music. Uh, so I don't know if Danny Boyle ever made music videos, but if you told me he did, I, I would totally buy it. So I think, yeah, you have a lot of these mid-90s young directors coming up and really honing their craft, but being given a lot of freedom to, to kind of make movies that they, they want to make. Yeah, I agree. And, then, um, yeah, and, and I think that, that, that sort of, that thing specifically kind of is one of the things that really tends to, to be able to speak to young people who are looking for something in film that, that is a little bit different um, and could also work, you know, overall in general to, to younger people, even if they're, they aren't, you know, thinking of themselves as having budding uh, interests in, in cinema. Um, Danny Boyle, uh, I don't know if he was involved in music videos or all. I can totally see that, kind of like you were saying. But I know he did a lot of television um, almost like for 10 years before Shallow Grave. So um, yeah. I think that's kind of like where he cut his teeth. And I think one of the other directors that you could say is definitely in uh, Transponding is uh, Mike Lee, who, uh, you know, kind of does the. Yeah. Uh, British films that they're like more serious minded than this and, and certainly not as sort of like uh, uh, energetic or jump off the page or crude as this movie yeah. is. Um, the, yeah, definitely that sense of location in yeah. terms of sort of the, yeah. the uh, British sort of working classes and also similar a, a film that we, we spotlighted a, a couple months ago, uh, Bruce Robinson's With Nell and I. I, I assume was a big influence on this too. Um, you know, that's another film about young people who sort of run around, uh, run around Scotland. In, in their case, they're they're mostly just drinking alcohol, but um, getting into misadventures, drug-induced misadventures. Uh, yeah, I think that Mike Lee is a good call, though. Uh, it's a sort of a different way of approaching these films, but you can kind of see the same specifics in the characters and in the, uh, you know, the social economics of, of, of these people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, I mean, I know obviously we haven't seen the sequel, Mm -hmm. uh, none of us have, but just sort of like what we might be hoping to get out of it or expectations for it. Like Maddie, do you have, uh, are you planning on seeing the sequel? Are you interested in it? Is there anything that you're hoping to get out of it? Well, okay. I'm, I'm not planning to see it. I have very little interest in it. Um, but just as like a side note to that, um, I'll just like speak on something really quickly that I think is interesting. Like right now we're Hollywood is going through this, um, phase of like rebooting so much old material and just going through like sequel after sequel. Um, I just think it's interesting that like a film that was born in that nineties explosion of like young independent film 
filmmakers would get the same treatment um, right now in Hollywood. Um, And I just think it's interesting to think about how, like, uh, right now I feel like Hollywood is missing out on, like, um, kind of fostering the talents of people who could be, like, the next Danny Boyle or, um, you know, the next uh, Quentin Tarantino or whatever, and instead are just going back to, like, the same stuff that we're already, like, super familiar with. So, like, part partly, like, I'm so just kind of fed up with that. <laughs> um, I have no interest in going back to this movie that I wasn't even, like, personally super into in the first place. But then again, like, some people, you know, love this movie, and they always will. And so I can definitely see, like, uh, there's definitely an audience for it, but... um yeah, I don't know. I'm just personally getting tired of all these sequels and reboots and all that. <laughs> I think that's a really interesting point in terms of sort of fostering directors uh, who could be like the next Danny Boyle. Like everybody kind of sees that the way that Hollywood is using young directors now is young directors are making uh, pretty much usually an in- a small indie film that has some sort of moderate success, never really totally breaks out, but shows uh, as to having a lot of vision. Uh, and and uh, the most cynical of, of people who are, are talking about this trend are thinking of, of these films that these young filmmakers are making as less of less of films and more of like an application to, to move on to big Hollywood uh, films. Uh, and then they're, they're, these people are being plucked out and, and making the huge, you know, the biggest films that, that are out there, the big blockbusters. So like Colin Trevorrow is the, the, the most obvious example that everybody points to. He makes a film like Safety Not Guaranteed, which, I mean, if you're looking at the impact that Safety Not Guaranteed had uh, against the impact that Train Spotting had, I mean, it's not even close, right? Yeah, um, Safety Not Guaranteed I think, is way better. <laughs> well <laughs> i mean yeah okay that, that's obviously that's not what i was going for but um, i'm joking i'm joking you know, like these like these kind of what maddie was saying like these independent films like they're still out there and like they can gain they can definitely gain buzz they can you know they're definitely talked about online they you know they'll make you know, certain film critics' top 10 lists and, and what have you. They won't make a lot of money, but that kind of doesn't seem to be, like, the main thing. There, there's, I guess, part of it is just there's too much competition in the, in the independent landscape. Like, there's, like, a thousand movies coming out in now, like, 900 to a thousand movies that have come out in 2016 and in 2017, as compared to 1996, when there were, I'm guessing, like, maybe 200 movies played in theaters. So just like the number of films that are out there, it's harder to to really um, uh, to find the you know the the big impacts. And then yeah, just that shifting economics of, of filmmaking where the young directors are kind of they're kind of picked out before they can have that second and third movie that still are small, still have a lot of personal vision in them. Um, they're they're kind of being promoted earlier than they used to be. And then, of course, you know, there's there's the problem that there aren't any, there aren't any, there there are hardly any mid movies, you know, uh, mid budget movies anymore. There's only the tiny budget movies and the big budget movies that I think kind of plays into it. But yeah, I think that's that's kind of I I wasn't really thinking about that in terms of uh, this sequel coming out, but I think that's a really that's a pretty astute point. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, I totally agree. Um, um, yeah, go ahead, John. I just sort of like it's almost depressing in a way. It's sort of like the the stuff we're describing like makes it sound like you've got kind of like one shot to make it, and mm-hmm. that if you stumble along the way, then that like you might be done. And even if you do make it, then here you are as somebody like Danny Boyle who's ending up going back to material that he uh, you know first first started uh, mm-hmm. thinking about more than twenty years ago. Yeah, the the only uh, the only director that I can think of that is sort of in this trend right now is Jeremy Saulnier, um, who's made two movies that are on the lower end of the spectrum, but both have a lot of personal vision, being Blue Ruin and Green Room, which are both movies that I love. Uh, I can, I mean, I can, I can see him, you know, being. I guess it, it kind of depends on on what the the filmmakers want want to be, right? Like. Do they want to be, you know, making the Jurassic Worlds of the world or do they want to keep doing their, you know, just kind of chugging along and, and you know, making their, their sort of visions? I mean, we're kind, of in a, we're kind of in a space in cinema where it's hard to do both, right? Like David Fincher and Danny Boyle came up at times where they can make these movies that aren't the biggest Hollywood blockbusters. They're like more moderate in scale, which gives them a little bit more personal freedom. I think, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, like th- those kinds of films are they're so they're they're really not out there. Which is which is yeah, like you said, it's kind of depressing. Um, uh, the the other filmmaker that I, I can think of in the in this sort of line too is, but it's a very different case is Shane Carruth, who is who, who made Primer, uh, and he made. Um, Uh, upstream color color, yeah which also like those are crazy vision movies right totally outside of the mainstream but he's sort of a guy who has been on record of saying like he never wants to take money from any you know big studios any big corporations to make his movies like he wants to do everything on his own so that's kind of not even really in the same space as someone like Danny Boyle but uh another like artistically driven filmmaker who um who's kind of satisfied with making his little movies that, uh, that give him total freedom. And I'll I'll say like, I I come off as cynical, you know, mentioning like Colin Trevorrow, like jumping up from safety, not guaranteed to Jurassic world. Like, I don't think, I mean, I I don't want to like make that as like a value judgment that he isn't interested in making art or like doesn't have any sort of directorial vision. Cause like, I think that's one that's not true and you know that I think that comes off as a little cynical but I think it's just the way that the world works now like if you want to be the next Spielberg you're 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 not making Jaws you know you're making Jurassic World so that's just kind of how it is now go ahead Maddie (laughs) sorry just real quick I think we should also mention like if we're talking about smaller directors who are working from a particular artistic vision and who maybe don't want to make the jump into directing like part of the Marvel universe or whatever. Um, I think there are a lot of uh, female directors out there who are like starting to get like a lot of money or, you know, more money than maybe they could have even like five years ago to produce movies and direct. I just saw, uh, I just watched uh, Anna Rose Holmer's The Fits. Oh, it's so good. Like, excellent, excellent movie. And I just, I mean, I don't, I obviously don't know her, but I don't like, I thought she displayed like such good 
directorial like intuition like with everything she was doing I don't see her trying to make the leap into like the big Hollywood blockbuster Mm -hmm. and I'm sure there are more women out there like her and men of course so I think just like trying to keep tabs on those people is really important if we want to keep like the smaller movie scene going yeah Uh, yeah well and and I I mean obviously Hollywood wouldn't (laughs) wouldn't pick as they've shown time and time again, they wouldn't even consider picking a woman to, yeah. to make one of their, their big films. So right. uh, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole nother issue. <laughs> I feel like we got far away from a train spotting, but I feel like yeah, it was, yeah. It, you want to, you want to bring us back to, uh, no, to it was, it was still a good, done. it was a good talk, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting sure. how, how we got there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, well, I, it, it shows that, T2, which is a terrible title, obviously, but uh, the T2 train smutting sits in this sort of strange world in terms of movies that are being made today and and what we're looking for in terms of sequels and remakes and reboots and whatever. Like, it kind of sits in a weird space in in between all of that. Um, Go ahead, John. No, I guess, like, the the whole reason why I even kind of brought this up was just, like, and I haven't done my due diligence to look into Danny Boyle interviews or anything because I hadn't seen train spotting and probably mm-hmm. I'm not going to see this new movie, but just like, why is this here? And yeah. why now? And is it because, I mean, if you look back at his sort of filmography, it's been a little touch and go since he won the Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire. Um, is, does he have to make this movie? Um, mm-hmm. Or does he just want to? And I, I don't know what the answer is to that, but if it's because if he feels like he has to, it's discouraging that we've gotten to that point with somebody like Danny Boyle. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I don't know what that sort of suggests for uh, the, the state of the industry, if you will. But um, yeah. I, I guess we'll find out. Or I, I just need to Google a Danny Boyle interview. So, <laughs> uh, Well, I know he was on film spotting recently, so I'm sure he talks about oh, it. Yeah, uh, yeah sure. uh, Obviously, the, the, the podcast, the film podcast that... Uh, it takes its name <laughs> um, from Train Spotting, uh, so that that would make sense. Uh, yeah, I haven't I haven't listened to that either, or read, read much of of Danny Boyle's thoughts on why he brought this back. But I don't know; it's interesting, right? Like, I I will definitely. I mean, I see pretty much anything of note that comes out, but I I'll definitely see T two Train Spotting uh, once it once it opens up here in Chicago. We will have a review of it on the site. Um, so we'll, we'll, we will, uh, the Sin Essential will have an official opinion on, on the film that you'll, you should be able to see by the time you're listening to this. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the reviews that I've seen have been moderately good. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that might change anyone's opinion on, on, you know, whether, how they approach the, the sequel that's coming. Um, I think a lot, like Maddie said way earlier that i think there there are definitely people that want to catch up with these characters like uh and obviously i mean there so much has happened in the past uh 21 years since the film was released obviously we've seen all of these actors grow and throughout their careers um one thing that i said in my opening take is that ewan mcgregor now kind of seems like such a dad that like seeing him again in in the role of Renton is like like stumbling across your parents like secret collection of photographs from when they were young and like being freaked out about that. Um, so I mean, I for me though, like I, since I don't have any particular 
uh, attachment with the characters from this movie, but I do have attachments to the actors. That's kind of where I'm a little bit more interested in, in revisiting to see how these actors who have changed so much, uh, when they're put back into these roles, like what that's going to look like now. Uh, it's sort of a strange and small uh, distinction as opposed to seeing how these characters have grown over 21 years. But yeah, I think that's kind of where um, I'm most interested in, in seeing. And I, I think that if, if you know, it, it brings sort of a similar shaggy style, it could be interesting. You can kind of, I, I feel like you can kind of imagine what some of the big plot points of this film are going to be, right? Like, just thinking of young people growing up who used to be big drug addicts and where they are 20 years later, obviously they're all still alive. So you know that their, their lives have probably changed in good ways in, in some ways. But um, yeah, I think um, as long as it, it, it doesn't kind of hit all the rope plot, you know, points of uh, them just coming back together and like, you know, looking back at their lives and being overly dramatic in that way. I think if it still tries to have that sort of crazy spirit that the original film had, I think, you know, I think there might be some interesting things. And at the very least, it'll be, you know, a, a little entertaining film and surrounded by, you know, the, the King Kong skull. I like yeah. The yeah. For, and Beauty and the Beast, right? We should probably. Start oh, by the way, yeah. yeah. <laughs> by the way, John, I meant to bring this oh. up at the beginning. We, we need to check in. Have you? Have you? Right, our new watched, segment. Have you watched Beauty and the Beast yet? <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> okay, check that next time on this essential podcast. For has John seen Beauty and the Beast yet? <laughs> if, if if I haven't by the next one, then we need a, a special theme song for this segment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> uh, um, I was going to just say that uh, we should probably start to wrap things up, but I did want to acknowledge uh, one thing, which is watching this movie, I was just absolutely astonished that somebody had seen it and within probably two years thought, boy, this Ewan McGregor guy should be the new Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, right? That's kind of crazy. <laughs> um, any closing thoughts from you, Maddie? Um, let's see. Uh... Not my favorite movie, but um, <laughs> it certainly is part of an interesting moment in cinema, 90, the 90s Indies explosion. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of fun to think about it in that context. Um, Aaron, any, uh, any closing thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it seems like I probably liked it a little bit better than the two of you did, but this isn't really a film that I'm uh, going to be uh, stumping for in any sort of way. It, it's sort of an... I think in overall, it's sort of an interesting, uh, has a lot of different interesting dichotomies at play, like these characters being interesting, but you're never really fully invested in them. It's sort of a crazy manic, uh, fast paced film at times, but then at other times it kind of sort of drags it. it it's sort of a, I mean, it's like I said before, it's, it's a really shaggy movie, which, uh, has, you know, it has some charm from, from that, even when it, it is, it's far from perfect in, in terms of its narrative and its characters. Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm never going to get that baby out of my head. So, uh, <laughs> or the shit. <laughs> yeah, or a lot, a lot of shit. Just so much, so much shit. Um, so on that note, uh, we'll, let's, uh, wrap things up. Uh, thank you to the Hemingbirds for the use of the song Half a Second off their album Half a Second. I heard that at the top of the episode. 
Um, also want to mention that you can uh, follow us on Twitter at The Sin Essential. You can like us on Facebook uh, at The Sin Essential and search for us on iTunes where you can subscribe to the podcast and we would really appreciate it if you enjoyed it to leave us a review and uh, five stars. Um, you can read all about our train spotting coverage, including our T2 train spotting review at thesinessential.com. Films that are coming up, Aaron. Can I uh, can I do this? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was actually just going to butt in too because uh, yeah. the, the the film we're covering next week is is your choice, John. But we won't be having a formal podcast episode on it. So uh, yeah, you want to give your two minutes on Abbas Kiersnami's close up. Yeah, I thought I'd mention it because we won't be discussing it on the podcast, but um, I'm going to be leading coverage of uh, uh, Close Up, the 1990 film from Iranian director Abbas Kiarostami, who passed away last year, which was a real bummer for me. Um, Speaking of sort of budding uh, cinephiles, like this movie, I guess more so probably uh, the movie he released in 2011, which was Certified Copy. was really seminal for me kind of getting into films and and kind of realizing what they were all about and what they could do, especially international films. And uh, after I saw that movie in theaters, I uh, just kind of went bananas and took in as much Kurosami as I could. And that sort of led me down the Iranian cinema rabbit hole, which is a wonderful, delightful, amazing rabbit hole to go down. So you should all do that sometime. Um, But Close Up, I think, is... Uh, really just such an interesting kind of uh, it's it's a movie about blurring the line between documentary and fiction and uh, and it I think tells just such a compelling story in a totally unique way and I'm really excited to I'm, I'm really excited that a lot of my colleagues are going to be seeing it for the first time uh, and hopefully a lot of our readers and listeners so um, check yeah. it out if you can uh, it's on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray uh, I'm not sure where you can stream it, but probably somewhere. So uh, check it out. And then uh, following that, we're going to be discussing um, Alfonso Cuaron's uh, Children of Men, uh, which is really kind of ironically another super seminal film for me. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll talk about that on the podcast. And then following that, we've got Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. So super exciting um, stuff coming up. And uh, as always, we thank you for listening. Maddie, thank you for joining us again. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully we can do it again soon. And uh, with that, uh, we'll close. And uh, thanks again. We'll talk to you soon.